Sarah spoke about insight meditation in Theravada Buddhism as being single pointed. What did you mean? Does it run away from joy and is it dry? And how does your Buddhism differ? Well, Yeah. So, so there are many different ways of presenting Dhamma. So, you know, this, this coinage, Theravada Buddhism itself, is rather late um, coinage. I think it was decided in 1950. So this is a term decided to cover all these various, um, you know, forms and lineages and texts and you know general stream of of doctrines and practices in Southeast Asia, which have got a strong co- co- uh, coherence compared to say with northern schools, which are very diverse. Mm-hmm. And using these Pali texts. So, this the Pali itself is, is not is quite close to what the Buddha spoke, but not exactly. It's a kind of concocted language that was derived in order to cut and encapsulate these texts made out of a blend of various dialects. And so that was kind of being formed for a hundred, two hundred years after the Buddha's death. So gradually these, what he'd said, people were trying to remember and collect together and form into some kind of, you know, thing. And that was going on. So clearly different people had different memories of it. Mm-hmm. So there was some sense of, diff- uh, of uh, coherence. Uh, not complete coherence. No. And so, because so disputes, differences of opinion arose, particularly over pieces that weren't that clear. So this is how this so-called Buddhism sort of never exactly crystallized into one. It was always a diverse stream uh, of... Uh, of memories and, and passing on teachings. Because you can imagine in, you know, 5th century BC India in the jungles, the forests, no telecommunication, very few roads. Things were very, you know, diverse and scattered. But, um, so one particular group, you know, very keen on a process of analyzing, analyzing and they took their inspiration from a couple of sources um, that, are, that are there in the canon, in what's called the Pali canon, where this amazing disciple, the Buddha Sariputta, who's got a particular kind of mind that's able to see things with a certain this, 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 this sort of precision. And he was pretty much outstanding and maybe even unique. And so this was considered really, this, this is the peak, because he was very highly praised. But he wasn't the only one. Other people expressed the Dhamma differently, including 
The Buddha didn't express it quite the same way. It was just an expression. And out of that um, arose a particular persuasion called Vibhaja analysis, school of analysis. And they started to formulate what's called the Abhidhamma, which is a very meticulous, using this kind of precision point by point by point by point by point. And so their sense of the mind it's really tiny, tiny moments that are occurring, split second, even infinitesimally microseconds, that you can, you know, if you're very refined, you can detect these. Um, so this, this, this kind of understanding arose. And then, so that, then that got passed on, went down to Sri Lanka, and uh, at 500 AD, this great commentator, Buddha Gosa, appeared and he scooped it all up. And he could say he's almost the founder, if you like, of Theravada. Because it was a, a process whereby the suttas were looked at through this kind of Abhidharma mindset. It didn't quite fit. So occasionally to squeeze things a bit to make it fit. And this is uh, Theravada. That's the basis of it. And so, and then they, they, they had this idea that there were two kinds of meditation, samatha meditation, where you went into this jhana state, where you were kind of, you know, really out of it, and very happy, but... Mm-hmm. And you could linger there for a long time, and then this other thing called dry insight, where you didn't do any jhana, you avoided it, because you might just hang out in this blissful state. You fed this crisp microanalysis which recognized the impermanence of mind and this was fruition in, in uh, liberation. So this separated the two. And this is quite contrary to the scriptures which says you keep the two together. And it doesn't actually do this micro um, mind thing. The mind is not experienced or reviewed at in these micro uh, entities. It's more like the mind is the mindset. It does not, in, you know, instantaneous microsecond. <coughs> or maybe it is, but you don't have to look at it that way. But out of this particular view of seeing things, which must have some truth to it, there arose what they call insight meditation, the meditation. And that particularly became very... Um, highly regarded in Burma, where they have a very, very high regard for the Abhidhamma as being the absolute cream of the Buddha's teaching. Although many people dispute whether the Buddha ever taught it, but you don't say that in Burma. <laughs> because to, to that, that is actually, you know, the pinnacle. Um, so then they sort of devised and developed all many lineage, lineages based upon this developing this very, very refined micro-analysis of mind states. Um, and that is called insight meditation. And so certain renowned teachers, such as the Burmese Ubakin and Mr. Goenka, the Indian, also use this system. Uh, and Upandita and Mahasisada use this system. So this was the kind of basic thing that when teachers came from the West to, to 
Burma, Myanmar, then because then they could pray in these because there are these meditation monasteries. They pick this this kind of this is this is Buddhism. This is Buddhist meditation. And take this back to the West because it's fairly it's a nice, crisp, precise um, packet. You don't and it's kind of you can secularize. You don't need you know it's really just um, it's got a scientific t- taste to it. Yeah. Um, and so this is the origins of what, what I don't know how it is now of what's called insight meditation which is written this way uh, so it emphasizes the, the point and getting to this point by point um, analysis mm. And avoiding or avoiding uh, jhana, you just need something called kanika samadhi, which is very momentary. So yes, it doesn't experience uh, joy because joy would be considered something you you know you might kind of extend into that a bit and lose some of that dry. What's called dry? What's called dry insight in that you don't experience happiness. You want to be, because happiness you might linger in, so you want to cut it down, just analyze it. So it's very objective, rational uh, approach. And so with that, this, the one, one word that is, does occur in, in the scriptures is a word called ekagata, which means eka is one, and aga means chief, point, pinnacle, um, things of this nature, you know, something that's the... So then this, from when you have this kind of sense, you look at, oh, this is the one point. So you, the idea is to get really one point, which is a very fine, tiny, you know, split second, gets crisp and precise and objective about that to they get to that point. When you want to get your mind you know, to this one-pointed state. Um, and that, so that's interpreted that way. Whereas a more a broad interpretation would mean you've got one thing in mind. Right? See, see the difference? You know, you, you've got one thing that you're really focused your object of preoccupation. You're, you know, you're motivated to be focused. Your intention is to be with your breathing. So, that you, you know, you're getting to the point which is that. So it's not necessarily microsecond or second, it's just this is your aim, your mind is focused this way. So that changes, has got an effect in that the quality of attention uh, is not so required to be so um, such a tiny lens, you might say. It can be quite open. Because the one point is intention. You're only interested in one thing. Right? You see the difference between attention and intention? So I could say, I could look at you, I've got one point, I want to really um, talk to you about this one point. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about, um, you know, I don't know, dinner or something like that. So that's the one point. I don't mean I want to talk about a tiny little fibre of 
vegetable celery on your plate. <laughs> yeah, so it's a different. So you see that that focus narrows attention, and so with that you get well. Where's the one point you can get with breathing? Well, it must be on the tip of your nose. Yeah, so you get there because that's where else you get one point. But when you look in the scriptures, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say focus on one point. It says be, be mindful or bear in mind the experience of breathing. It's a fairly open topic. And so your attention then is much more, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm turning towards. This is what I'm you know, aiming around. But that quality, that experience of breathing could be as it says, breathing in long, breathing in short, breathing in experience in the entire body. Now, most people have got more than a nose in their body. So, how do you, so you see there's a, there's a bit of a discrepancy there between you know, a, a, a one physical point and having one aim. Yeah, then this actually can make quite a substantial difference to how you're approaching it. <clears throat> because if you read the Anapanasati Sutra from that perspective, mindful, mindfully one sits, holding the spine upright, mindfully one knows one is breathing. Okay? My breathing. Now it doesn't say a breath. It doesn't say watch your breath. It says be mindful, bear in mind the experience of breathing. Now what that is, it says when it's in and it's out. So it does say that, mindfully one breathes in and mindfully one breathes out. Mindfully one breathes in long, mindfully one breathes in out long. So the important thing is the in-out, isn't it? Now in-out is not a point, it's a flow, it's a stream. Right? And it's a rhythm, and it's an energy. So if you're being asked to discern in out, now the salient difference is very distinct in terms of energy between breathing in and breathing out. They're, 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 they're like day and night. Breathing in is brightening, sharpening, breathing out softening, expanding, isn't it? As an energy. So you don't need to do that to get it. In fact, if you do, you might miss it. You want to be like that. How do you breathe in and breathe out? And then how do you breathe in and breathe out experiencing the entire body? When you're focused on one point. So, well, actually, this when it says the entire body, what it means is the body of the breath, which is happening on your nose. Well, why didn't the Buddha say that then? <laughs> you know, either he was a not very good teacher, or he, or he didn't he missed the point. So, this sense is you, you know, what it says in in this in the scripture is that so the or every part of your body is suffused, every, not one pore 
of your body. So he uses the word pause, the very pores of your skin are suffused with the happiness and pleasure of this freedom from the hindrances. So you're saturated in it. And that's not that's a very expanded experience and joyful. And that's mainstream. You know that's the that's that's the mainstream text what it's saying. So this there's quite a difference of a not just textual but of a, of approach in what you're doing. Because one is asking you to kind of open and feel rhythm and energy in the entire body, and the other is asking you to close. Yeah? And not get into happiness. So they're very distinct differences of approach. So I think what I said was, well, you know, that's one focuses on attention, which is the micro, and emphasizing that. And that's objective, because with that, you, it's very much in what the word insight brings to mind. It's a visual thing, isn't it? Some of your eyes can do that, can't they? They can go down like that, and they're very good at that. But if you're using that quality of attention, it's very much through the eye-brain connection. Okay? Yeah? That, that's the kind of attention that does that. It's up here. So you can say, witnessing the breath, watching my feelings. And that will definitely give you a quite a precise object. Yeah? But it will not allow you to experience the fullness of what you're feeling. Because that's kind of, no, it's there. The point is there. Not, so I'm not in it, I'm observing it. And what the visual sense does, it always builds in a sense of space. You know, if you notice the visual consciousness, comes in with that, is, you know, she's six feet away, he's ten feet away, there's a sense of distance that occurs with that. And with that, where the other, other senses don't do that. They're much, they get less and less distant as you go through the sense fields, from the eye to the ear, to the tongue, the nose and the body, the smell. Very, when you come into your nose, there's no distance at all. It's just bang, there it is, it explodes inside you, right? So, when we recognize that the, and the touch consciousness, of course, it's either there or it's not. There's no distance. And when something, you touch something, it touches you. Okay, now that's a very different experience from observation, isn't it? Very different. Because now I cannot be other than involved. Uh-huh. I cannot be other than involved when, when touch is occurring. Now, what do you think a breath does? Have you ever seen a breath? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you felt them? Breath, breathing, happens to a body, not to the eyes. 
breathing happens in a body, not in the eyes. So what's the appropriate sense base to experience your breathing with? A body. Yeah. And how does that experience? You experience touch, you experience energy. And as you, I imagine you could, could acknowledge, your breathing and the bodily intimacy is very much associated with emotional qualities, emotional resonances. You know, the difference of breathing when you're happy, sad, depressed, angry, the emotional current very much synchronizes or affects the breathing and vice versa. So therefore, breathing, if it's steady, calms the emotional state. It only calms it through the body because the calming effect is the slowing down of the breathing within the body that has a calming effect. And any, any neurologist will tell you that. It, it affects the hippocampus thing, uh, and the amygdala, which would get very heated, and it cools it. It's just, just a neurological fact. Of course, some Buddha, they didn't know nerves. There's no word for nerve in Pali, because, you know, they're pretty small things. You cut a body open, you don't see nerves. So they didn't have a word for nerves. So what they're experiencing is kind of sankara, like bodily activation. I don't, well, I don't know what's causing it, but it's there. And it, this is we call this breathing, because it happens when we breathe. <laughs> yeah. So but breathing in the body is associated with the sort of nerve, you say the nervous energy of the body. Just if you look at the word Anapanasati is pana. Okay, now if you practice yoga, you probably heard of pranayama. As you know, pranayama, yes, you use physical breath, but the most things you're using, you're getting the energy to run through these nadis, channels. Well, it's the same culture. So they're talking about prana as an energy form rising through the body. Right. So, this is my Buddhism. <laughs> now, and so how do, you, how do you handle that? How do you, how do you handle that? Uh, my sense is you, you're basing your approach on, on the bodily experience, yeah, which is much more feeling, affected, whole, not so distinctly clear as the eye sense, not so sharply defined, much more a kind of spreading, suffusive quality that ebbs and flows. And this is not so easy because often our, our systems have lost acuity in that, in that sphere, so we try to encourage it. But I do feel this is perhaps more in line with the main um, theme that's there in the mindfulness of breathing suttas. And it is associated with piti, and that's right there in the Anapanasati. 
So to experiencing piti, experiencing rapture, which is a, a bodily, a subtle, sometimes strong, but it's a bodily activation, like an arousal, almost like a sexual arousal, but it's not sexual, it's just the whole body is, you know, brightened up by that. Piti and in sukha is a comfortable, things have settled into a comfortable, warm glow. And that's there, thoroughly experiencing this, thoroughly experiencing it, one calms the, uh, the chitta sankara, the emotional sense becomes calm because it's been made happy and satisfied. Therefore the chitta, chitta's energy also soothes and calms. That's, that's, the, that's what's there. Yeah. Now, of course, just to bear in mind that um, there are many, many lineages, and so Theravada Buddhism is a bit of a, yeah, I mean, it's certainly they're coherent on many features, Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths, Sila Samani Panya, and so on, but the forest uh, tradition, forest lineages in Thailand are quite removed from, they don't do Abhidharma at all. Um, they've got more like there's a certain tantric quality to their to their their stuff they, they're allowed, you know there's people out there they kind of super normal powers vibing with 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 spirits they're not doing you know they're out there doing all kinds of wild stuff you know? and uh, you know there's no it's just you know buddha and be happy and let go. <laughs> and keep keep working on clearing, you know, this muck and muddiness and confusion and agitation. So it's it's rather in some ways intellectually quite frustrating because it's so but in terms of, you know, the overall quality of it is is extremely powerful in its own its own way. Difficult to, to put texts on though. So this is this is another lineage, another aspect of what we call Theravada. And really these this is because there's some you know gut senses, you know, you get your teaching from a person. <coughs> In book things is for people who think a lot. Hmm. Uh, you know, we get our teaching this this person you know, he's got it, he's done it. He's been out there and he's sat 15 years at the root of a tree and, you know, he can talk the, to the devotees, this is, this is, the, he's got the real deal. And so, <laughs> and so that, uh, so, so they, they, then you get kind of little, um, you know, teachings. Uh, which are often quite epigrammatic and, and contextual, and much, much of Buddhism is vernacular, you know, rather than rather than uh, textual. But so, so it's sometimes it's almost there's a broad agreement, but it can be teacher-specific as a slightly different angle on it, depending on what they found and the way they felt it and the way it comes through them. And so you can you just listen to it. Basically, 
They're not saying you've got to do it my way, but you've got to do it a way that's really in your guts, <laughs> you know, under your skin. You've got to do it a way in which you're, you're living it fully. Is, is the, and however you express it. So I have my own ways of expressing things you won't, uh, you won't find that are not any mainstream thing. You know. <laughs> so certain thought patterns related to nervous energies in the body. <clears throat> well, all, all um, thought patterns are related to nervous energies. Um, you know, what, what gets a thought going? You may not even notice it because it probably takes no effort to get it going. It's just constantly going, buzzing. Uh, and you know, so this is why we're saying, well, you know, whatever you're thinking about, just come off topic and notice whether it's feel happy about that or make you feel uncomfortable whether it's something you're familiar with, there she goes again, you know, the same old cycle. Um, so something to be known about, this is an obsessive train of thought, and maybe it's associated with a quality of anxiety, or craving, or, you know, or something like that. So, so that you step off top, you get the general theme, and then you, how does that feel? Yeah, I feel pretty wound up, you know. So you can sense the overall nervous, the effect that it's taking on your nervous system and in your heart, of course. So it's sometimes the topic, but also the rate of it uh, is using energy. So, and the Buddha said, too much thinking tires the body. It's an expression he uses. Thinking, if you keep thinking, it tires your body. So, that's because that's where the energy is coming from. And in, uh, um, say, in the cultivation of samadhi, one of the things that begins to occur is thinking is carefully handled, minimized, 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 just what's necessary and then as the mind steadies, less and less thinking is necessary to keep steering it, and then thinking can stop. And then the energy then is just uh, gathered and collected together into an agreeable um, state, energetic state of composure and stability and firmness. Uh, to, to release these nervous energies, yeah, that's certainly part of the practice. Um, releasing, uh, somebody else asked about discharge, how do you do discharge? Well, you don't really do it in, in the way that you um, can create or encourage a form that, where the body can do that. I mean, certainly not just the body, but first of all, there has to be an interest in, in that's just enough of this, you know. You know, this is just steaming me up, uh, going round and round, so getting nowhere really. Uh, so, in some sense of stepping back and feeling the effect of it. So, that sense of dispassion 
losing interest in the thinking process as something that's going to get you where you need to go. And then we might come to the overall energetic feel, and then we might find actually when we're thinking a lot, the predominant area of our body that seems most activated is around the head, eyes and throat, particularly the front of the head, not the back, but this area here. And maybe there's a bit of, depending on the emotional charge, it might be an effect around the chest or heart. And so it's okay, feeling that, and then the process of, of releasing and discharge is one where you, you take the local area and you keep widening your, your aperture of awareness to include a greater and greater part of your body. So you're feeling that energy and you're not dismissing it, you're just holding it as energy and the, that, that experience. And then, okay, what's happening? My chest as well, and then the shoulders and the back as well, and then down my back, and then really down in the legs, and even down to the soles of the feet. So if you keep winding and winding and widening, then that if the widening effect has the quality of um, calming uh, because the energy, if it's been contained, you say, around your head, is now given a much wider uh, domain, right? Because you, you see, when, when it's up in your head, you often find it slightly constricted uh, in your chest, you, you know, or even have to knot your head up eyebrows to get thinking, you know. So it tightens up to get it done. You know, so if you widen that, that energy then has got a much wider base to move in, so as it starts to diffuse the entire body, the intensity of the energy diminishes, because it's the same energy in a bigger area. Right? So the intensity diminishes, and, and then this is how, oh, it discharges. It, it, that, that's discharge, that's calming and discharge. And of course, the, you know, the skill with that is to not create more. So, don't get annoyed, don't get upset. Don't try to figure out why, because those will all build up more energy. Because you're adding more, adding more, adding more to it. Instead, use your body to relax the shoulders, fingers. And then there's a possibility to for that to just drop, the, the energy then drops, calms, soothes and spreads. And then the, that's, how you, that's how you discharge and release nervous energy. You may need to even, you know, if it's still very strong for you, go walk, <coughs> walking, aware of the space, so you can keep winding and winding that uh, and even moving within it to, to loosen up the places where it's it's blocked. Mm.
So if someone's asking a question, you can see. Right. <laughs> 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 so I think to summarize, about the practice of metta, the heart practice, when a person's feeling um, resonant with something that, uh, that I wrote in a book on meditation, um, that basically what I'm encouraging is the non-aversive, non-contracted sense as the, as the baseline. So, so it's essentially it's a non or a reducing or a releasing of uh, certain contracted states, which can be, so this saying, that which supports that non-aversion, the, instead of the mind <coughs> rising up and tightening against or antagonizing or antagonized towards one's attitude and you know, this kind of crinkling which you can feel somatically. It's just the, the, not, the not doing of that and the, and the stopping of doing that. I think the person's then comparing that, say, with um, a situation where instead one kind of considers other beings and sends them loving kindness. So they seem to be rather different because one is more productive, you might say, of quality of loving kindness, the one is the elimination of ill will or the release of ill will. So, um, would this sense of just um, what I'm talking about, the non-aversion, would that be um, general, this general sense of, I'm not exactly, you know, bursting with bliss and happiness, but I'm feeling I'm sending you waves of non-hatred, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I can do right now, I can't. (laughs) That's a good place to start because sometimes that's about as much as one can do. (laughs) To be genuine about it all. So looking at something that really certainly if one if it, you know it can rise from more that's great, uh, but the again the, to my mind the problem is could one be actually counterfeiting? So you say okay, all right here's some goodwill. Yeah, about you, you know, some for you, <laughs> and it's something I should do because otherwise I'll feel pretty bad if I can't do it. <laughs> And so there could be the sense in which we're slightly... Because we know we should be loving. Everybody knows we should be loving. Um. (laughs) (laughs) The real thing doesn't come out quite so immediately as that, for me anyway. But I can manage okayness. So is this quality of metta a factor of the field of jitta? It can be. 
Somebody asked here about fields. This is an expression I've used to to mean um, like a whole 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 domain. So we might say now this is the field of our group in which there are many different beings, different people, and yet there's a broad sense of you know, we are all practicing, you know something, meditation, and we're probably doing it slightly different ways, but we're all giving precepts, we're all interested in, in purifying the mind, in releasing suffering, in, so that's our, that's, our, that's our field, our field is that, that's our corporate <coughs> quality. Yeah. So you might say there's this field here. Now when we did some of this uh, group uh, felt sense thing, then you, you, as you've gone to your threes and fours, you create a little field there. There's the field of the four, three or four of you. So within that, certain quality arises. You know, a certain energy, a certain connectedness arises. And then we open to the larger thing, and it's a bigger field. So all these, what I call fields, so a sense of, of a broad domain, a broad context. So this, now the field of citta includes all mind states. So it's a very, can be a lot of items in that. Every mind states skillful and unskillful. Uh, many different levels of consciousness from the most refined, um, soup, you know, sort of subtle jhana is in the field of citta potentially. And of course the most gross states, so everything in there, that's the field of jitta, and it's associated with um, perception and feeling uh, and mentality, and it's associated with a certain quality of intention. Intention isn't, doesn't mean a deliberate act of the will, it means a certain energy directive, so your energy is placed towards in the in the experience of goodwill, or your energy is being placed in the place of ill will. So this quality, this sense of one is energizing, one is potentizing calm, or one is potentizing agitation, or one is potentizing, um, you know, jhana. So any of these. Um, effects within the within the jitta field can become almost like unfold into another field. Yeah. You know, so that any one of these can become a topic and then it, as the jitta dwells on it, it swells. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, so that, that's, that's the nature of it. So jitta can constantly potentize particular points or single mind states, dwell upon them and magnify them into becoming domains, so one can dwell, for example, in, the, in this field of loving-kindness. You might start with a spark or sparking, like a little an object that triggers it, and you get the resonance, and then, you know, that experience of goodwill starts to unfold, and begins to have an effect on one's perceptions of people, one's experience of oneself and your body 
and the nature of fields is the, the subject-object thing begins to dissolve. You're in it. You're not witnessing it, you are in it. Hmm? Yeah. So we might say also the field, the worldly field, or the sense field, we're in. This experience of seeing, t- touching, tasting, thinking, we're in it, right? It's happening, we're, we're you know. That's the sense, so it's six, six folds to it. That's the sense field. And you might say you're also in the field of the world. You know, you're in a field of political, economic system, climate, all this stuff. You know, you're not separate from it. You're in that. But rather than, you see, so but rather than think, oh, we're stuck in this. You're in it, but if you potentize your energy on certain crucial points, you enter into another field. This is quite magical. So, say, within this very situation, on one level is this, you know, meat bag with bones in it, and so what? Um, with sort of aches and pains and twinges. But I could focus on a little nice calm point at the end of the breath, and just really get in there, and then, ooh, that opens up, and this thing dissolves, disappears. And instead, I'm in a rather pleasant, agreeable, abiding place. That's the nature of fields. They, they open out of particular points and you're in them. Well, not quite correct. You're not in them. But that's your awareness. Uh, take some on. And exactly that is the point because, you know, when one's f- the field is something that there's a helplessness to it. You just, well, we're stuck in it. Then there's a sense of, oh, this is what I am then. Because it's always here. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. So this is what I am. But when that, you know, that can open to another completely different level of experience, well, who's she? Who's he? He's gone. You know, the, you know, secretary, whatever she was, she's not there, so there's just a sense of <laughs> something else. So this is how, you know, this sense of anatta becomes realized through the, through the very dependent arising of experience. And there isn't somebody making it arise, there's just the sense of intentionality and chitta that causes these to unfold, dependently unfold. They're all conditions. Um, okay. Is the Wuji posturing some Qigong questions? Is it normal to get so hot doing Qigong? It's quite normal. Uh, because you're working on energy, the energy, one f- form energy takes is, is heat, warmth. So you, you, it can warm you up quite considerably. Um, it, it's not unusual to just be standing there doing very little and sweat. 
and you think, you're just standing here. <laughs> but if you really, if your energy starts moving and strong, then you start getting sweat. It heats you up. You could also feel dizzy and, and because you're shifting energy around, you just feel really disoriented and need to take a nap. That can happen too. Is uh, doing Wuji a good one to use for standing meditation? Um, it's a strong form, Wuji. Uh, So you can you can use that. So it is it is you can contemplate within that. So we say meditation. We're really saying you know be mindful and aware of standing, sitting, lying down, and particular where you stand. I would say that Wuji is a very uh, good one for standing because you can stand for quite a considerable period of time, Wuji. Because it does, if you get if you get it right, your body adapts to it. It makes the body feel pretty light, you know, because there's so much strength coming in your legs. Your upper body begins to just become seem very light and open and, and effortless. So you can stand there for an hour in wheelchair, no problem. Whereas if you, if, you, if you haven't cultivated standing, then 10 minutes you start to feel, you know, tired or strained. Approaching another, as we did this morning, so this refers to the walking, have you sought out, <coughs> skillfully respond to sexual awarenesses of the self and other? Um, sexual awareness. Um, so I, I imagine you're meaning a certain um, tuning up or warming uh, that we associate with sexual energy. There it is. Um, well, there it is. There it is. <laughs> so it's it's there. So okay. So what do we do with that? Well, um, you don't project it out onto the other person, and uh, you, you soften. You probably soften your focus on the other person's physical form. Something that's just a light awareness. Because the more you sharply focus, this tends to push your energy out. Uh, particularly if there's areas of the body you're finding yourself stimulated by, so you've got soft focus on that. And then being aware of the parts of your body that are being heated or vibrant or whatever's happening, and widen to include the floor, the back, soften your awareness of the other being. You might put your hand up, say, it's pause, or want to wait on that one until this process is discharged and become stabilized. Mm. Mm. So, you know, the body is 
many channels, so some of these channels line up in terms of um, sexuality, which is one of the primary ways in which people experience, uh, you know, body energy moving. But it's just channels, and certainly there are triggering perceptions that can occur. So we soften on the triggering perceptions and ground the body, and that can help to um, diffuse the energy. It's not about you know contracting; it's about diffusing it. Past trauma. Now, I often feel a little numb, boundaries of safety yet thwart intimacy and happiness. I guess my question is how to skillfully handle trauma that's still alive. Well, I don't know if boundaries thwart. I think they're essential. I mean, you one can one can shift them. Yeah. You, you know, but then the negotiating boundaries, like, is it okay? So, you know, I'm here, and, you know, and then maybe, so we negotiate. If we're going to, boundaries between people, it's important to, to negotiate the opening to the other, and also the degree, and also the sense of, so that there can be a respectful and appropriate intimacy, which is deeply respectful. Um, I find this myself. I don't get lost. I don't find myself getting, hopefully, lost or, or into other other what I imagine other people are. Because I, I never really know. I know what's happening for me, and I know a sense of you know, interest in opening to another being, but I'm not saying they have to open. That's, if they want to, it's up to them really, isn't it? So that mutual handling of a boundary, the degree, and the care, to me this is very loving. Yeah. This to me is, is very loving. It's, it's really you know, respectful and concerned for the other's welfare that don't feel flooded or taken over or you know, expected to receive me or something. Because <laughs> that's... You know, it's mutual, isn't it? I can't expect you receive me, I mean, be nice, but it's your call. <laughs> and in your own time, as best you can, I mean, you don't, don't want to receive me, so you get over it, you know, it's nice like that. <laughs> so that gives me a certain happiness, I say, in a quiet way. How to skillfully handle trauma? Well, mm. avoid triggers. Trauma is difficult to handle. Don't go into it. 
the motto is don't go in until you can stay out. So when so you don't go into areas where they're triggering unless you really have the ability to just you know there's trauma, the nature of it is it pulls you in and then you're activated and it does you no good at all. So to discharge trauma you have to be pretty uh, skillful and know how to just and even have the help of another person to help you hold the line so you don't get pulled in and can take you back to your feet or non-traumatized areas so you might have a traumatic triggering that occurs often in you know upper body somewhere viscera belly chest throat those are the places that tend to receive them and so you you're just widening don't go into the center of that stay on the edge and keep widening so you again similar to as I said before creating this drainage post channel and get off the perception that triggers until you do have that capacity Okay, so a few things here. One is the difference between distinction between perception and consciousness. Well, suitors say where there is perception, there is consciousness. Where there's consciousness, there's perception. It's, uh, I think, Sariputta was this great. He said, "You can't find a, you can't find a dis- distinction. You know, it's like the back of your hand and the front of your hand." They are different, but where, where does one become the other? Um, so perception, consciousness, in, in, um, at least in Nikaya, the so ancient Buddhist text is uh, sixfold. It's the uh, receiving of a sense impression. It... Uh, that occurs with contact. So contact and the sense door opens, there is sense consciousness. So arises visual consciousness. That just presents the visual field. You know, you're thinking about something, the bell rings, the visual door visual the auditory door opens, there's auditory consciousness, the auditory field opens, auditory consciousness. So even though we could say, yeah, we've got them all, all the time, generally, you know, you, 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 they're there potentially all the time, but there's a particular uh, trigger that opens one. So we can say we can always taste, but most of the time we're not tasting anything. Or you put some, you know, salt or sugar or chili on your tongue, taste consciousness explodes. So there is the presence of taste arises 
That's that presence that is called consciousness. Perception is the overall um, the overall name of it, the overall sign, the overall flag. So we might say, oh, it's salty. The general term. This comes in the field of salty. It could be brine, it could be pickle, it could be a number of things that are salty. This is in the salty category. The open eyes, we see, oh, there's the blue. Generic term. There's pale blue, dark blue, bright blue, but the general term is a generic. We look around, we say, oh, women. Yeah? Perception. This is a generic thing. And what we see, you see maybe, I don't know, one particular feature, no, that's that. So perception is the, that which, which is able to provide you with a name. So clearly when one hears something, the auditory consciousness opens, and then, oh, that's the bell. Now it could be that that perception takes just that micro moment to come in, because we hear that, Oh, the gong. And so particularly with auditory, I mean, last night I was hearing this, woke up about three, flap, 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 bird, flap, flap, bird, no, not bird. Walk around outside, machine, no machine, flap, 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 flap. Going crazy? No. Flat, flat, flat. Never found out what it was, but my mind was running all these images, trying to perceive what it was, get a name for it. Is it a machine? Is it somebody doing something? Is it a, a piece of cloth flapping in the wind? All these different perceptions arose, trying to name what it was. And yet all the ordinary consciousness was saying, there's a sound. And the perception was going, what is that? <laughs> So there is a, you see, there is a distinction to a degree, but as soon as this conscious perception starts occurring, trying to name it, trying to name what it is, it's perceived as a something. How do, and the main thing to recognize about, uh, so consciousness is quite a passive default, it occurs. As soon as the sense door opens, there it is. Perception is a little more um, a little more subjective because we may note uh, oh there's an apple and some days apple may look absolutely wonderful So you get these secondary perceptions and meanings. And some days you've seen crates of them, you barely notice them. So also the perception can carry this deeper sense of a a felt meaning to it. And clearly with people, oh that's a person, oh it's so and so, I owe them $50. Suddenly they become a figure of, of, uh, of apprehension. 
triggers particular mental activations and to experience feelings and emotions in samadhi um, emotions become uh, more like um, very uh, subtle um, qualities of, of, of happiness subtle feelings feeling really means um, qualities of pleasure and pain these are associated samadhi is about mental feeling and that's what samadhi is samadhi is uh, um, a mental perception field that has these qualities of subtle feeling to it So, I think we've covered quite a bit of material here. Uh, the last simple ones. How does one meditate lying down? Well, step one, lie down. <laughs> step two, be mindful. <laughs> step three, try to avoid falling asleep. So, uh, um, you know, when you lie and recline, like any, any of these uh, forms, uh, you know, if you're standing, sitting, essentially you want to get that sense of ground, so it's a real establishment, so lying down it's going to be your back, I imagine, or your side, so you can do either of those, back or the side, uh, so you get the sense of aware of the entire crater form, you know. So it means you want the entirety of the contact impression with the floor. And so establish that and extend over that. So you, the, the mind is then um, held into the body in that particular form. And you notice then you're reclining, energy changes. Well, for, for, might, you might not, you might be someone who finds it difficult to to the energy to subside, but this can help. If you drop thoughts and topics and, and put all your energy into the bodily form when you recline, it can help to discharge mental or emotional agitation or jangling, so it might help you to get to sleep better. Um, so over the whole form, and then uh, if you want to uh, make something of that, as you, you use, you be quite formal in your reclining. You don't curl up, but keep your body quite long and open. And if you are relying on your back, you can open the front of the body and have a sense of awareness of the back as the ground, the foundation, and opening the front of the body and feeling yourself breathing in and out and whatever uh, goodwill, safety, comfort you want to suffuse through the form as you do so. Sweep up and down with it also. So these are things you can practice as you do when you're sitting. But you do need to have a formality to it, otherwise you're just going to curl up and go to sleep. Okay, let's take a, um, thank you for those, and 
take a break now.